All right, everyone, we're going to get started so that we maximize our time with our speaker. I think you know that I'm Clark Urban, and I'm delighted to welcome you this morning. And today we have one of our own, a man who needs no introduction, but deserves one, so I'm going to give it one. We have a very special presentation by our fabulous director of music and organist, Brent Erstad, and some members of the choir. Though still a very young man, Brent has already had a very distinguished career. He started out as an organist and choir master for Trinity Episcopal Church in Newport, Rhode Island. Then he served as the associate director of chapel music for St. Paul School in Concord, New Hampshire. In 2016, he came to the DMV as the director of choral music at Episcopal High School in Alexandria, and then came to us, St. John's, the next year on a part-time basis, and now happily serves full-time as our organist and director of music. Brent earned a bachelor's degree from the Cleveland Institute of Music, a master's degree in sacred music from Boston University, and a master's degree in education from the University of Pennsylvania. Brent and members of the choir will talk to us this morning on the subject of the Bach Motet, Sing to the Lord a New Song, which as we know will be sung at our 11 o'clock service. With that, please join me welcoming Brent and members of the choir. Before I begin, thanks to Clark, thanks to Rob, all the clergy, uh, for opening up this opportunity for us to dig into some really uh, excellent music this morning, both in the 11 o'clock service, which we'll hear shortly, uh, and also in this speaker series. I have to say, I always feel a little envious of those of you who get to attend this speaker series uh, every week. I know it's one of the amazing signature programs of this church, and of course, those of us in the choir are always uh, stuck in rehearsal during this time, uh, so I joked this week that I thought the only way I'd actually get to attend one was just to present it myself. So <laughs> here we are. Um, as will come as no surprise, I like to travel with backup singers, so I've brought um, nine of my friends and colleagues here uh, to do a little demonstrating as we dig into this work. Um, as you know, we're talking today uh, about J.S. Bach, about Bach's world, and also about uh, the motet we're going to hear at the 11 o'clock service, uh, titled Zingit dem Herrn ein neues Lied, or Sing to the Lord, a new song. Uh, it's cataloged as BWV 225, not to be confused with a cantata by the same name, Sing it dem Herrn, uh, which is BWV 190. Uh, this work was written, uh, we think, in or around 1727, and we say we think, uh, because like much of Bach's life, we don't have a lot of documentary evidence about uh, the occasions for which things were written. Um, but the, the reason they suspect this time period is based on uh, the evolution of Bach's handwriting over time. Uh, so they suspect as his sort of handwriting style evolved and changed, this seems to fall in line with what was going on around 1727, 1728. Um, although, like most things in Bach, there's a catch. The paper that it was written on is from an earlier period. Uh, so they're trying to reconcile these things. And I say all of that just to um, sort of acknowledge that when we get into sort of uh, proclaiming anything about Bach's life, uh, always, it always comes with more questions than answers. We don't actually have a whole lot of evidence um, of what happened. And so the things we do know, we take, uh, and we try to sort of uh, imagine what the pieces might have looked like in between. Um, I would say of the motets, uh, this one, Sing It Dem Heron, is probably the most popular. Bach didn't write a ton of motets. Uh, and of the ones he did write, we've probably lost more than we have left. Uh, we have at least five motets that we're quite sure were boxed, and one that we think might have been boxed, and some others that are a little more suspect than that. 
Um, so of the five that we really uh, believe were Bach's, this one is probably uh, the most famous. It's definitely the most uh, musically challenging. It's definitely the most acrobatic for the singers. Uh, and for that, it sort of holds a special place in the popularity uh, of Bach's motets. It's written in three distinctive sections, uh, what you might consider as being almost three movements, almost in the style of a, like a Baroque concerto. Uh, the outer two movements being fast, uh, fast tempo, the middle movement being slower, and based on a chorale tune. Um, before we get too far into the work itself, I wanted to take a little step back and actually just take a little look at what was going on in Bach's life at the time, assuming he wrote this in 1727 or so, what was going on in Bach's life at that time. Um, if it was written around 1727, it means that this work would have been written, uh, I guess, five years into his tenure as uh, cantor of the town of Leipzig, director of music of the, the four main churches in that city. Um, and he came to Leipzig in 1727 uh, directly from the employment uh, in the royal court of Prince Leopold uh, of Anhalt-Kirten. And Prince Leopold was a lot of things. He was a, a huge patron of the arts. He was a music lover himself. Um, he actually was a musician. I, by all accounts, I think he was a, quite a fine bass singer. He played the harpsichord. He played uh, the viola da gamba. Um, but one thing he was not was Lutheran. Uh, and Bach, of course, was living in a very Lutheran world surrounding him, and had spent much of his career up to that point writing music for, specifically for the Lutheran church. Uh, Prince Leopold was a Calvinist, and that tradition at that time didn't actually incorporate a lot of elaborate music in its worship, like Bach would have been writing. Uh, so instead, during the time that Bach was uh, employed by Prince Leopold in Curtin, uh, this is when he's writing a lot of his secular works. He's writing the Brandenburg Concertos, uh, the cello suites, the much-beloved cello suites, the violin sonatas. I think he wrote uh, like the first half or so of the Well-Tempered Clavier, uh, some of the... Um, some of the secular cantatas, I think, came from this time. Um, in any case, when he gets to Leipzig, um, everything is going to change pretty dramatically for him. And he's going to, again, leave this realm of writing for the secular world and throw himself headfirst into writing music for the church. Um, and in Leipzig, he's not just responsible for the music in one church, but the music in four churches. The four main churches uh, in the city of Leipzig at this time are St. Thomas, which is the church we most closely associate Bach with today, uh, St. Nicholas Church, uh, the New Church, uh, and St. Peter's Church, which was connected to the university. If you look at this map, I think the churches are the buildings in green. So up sort of center at the top, you see St. Nicholas, um, and then down here toward the bottom is St. Thomas. The university is the big building in the corner, and I don't think the New Church is actually uh, listed on this map. As if four churches wasn't enough, uh, he's also... Um, charged with teaching the boys who are studying in the boarding school connected to St. Thomas School. Uh, this image here is St. Thomas on the right, and the building to the left was the boarding school, as it might have looked uh, while Bach was working there. It underwent big renovation around that time as well. Um, but there were 55 or so boys uh, that could be housed in the school, and these boys, you know, like many of our independent schools today, um, were admitted for lots of different reasons. Some for academic reasons, that's what the rector wanted. Some for musical reasons, that's what Bach wanted. Uh, some for athletic reasons, um, and so on. And so we see in some of the documents a little bit of squabbling over, you know, priorities of admission and Bach saying, well, I really need another boy to be able to, you know, fill in the fourth part at St. Nicholas Church or whatnot. Um, so these boys 
um, of the school are charged, uh, in addition to their education, in providing music, particularly for the two main churches of the city, St. Thomas and St. Nicholas. So on any given Sunday, they're sort of being schlepped around and divided up and providing music in these two places. Now, as if that's not enough, uh, Bach, uh, there was more that he was expected to do. Um, he was brought to Leipzig uh, in a bit of a celebrity fashion. The city at the time uh, was a little bit of a city on the cusp of what they, what they hoped would be some greatness. It was sort of perfectly situated at the confluence of three main rivers, uh, a couple of prominent trade, uh, trade routes, which made it a really popular sort of burgeoning mercantile city at the time. Uh, commerce was sort of booming. And probably its only two big competitors were the towns of, or the cities, I guess, at the time of Frankfurt and Hamburg. Uh, the big difference being that Leipzig felt that it had a leg up in the area of arts and culture uh, and academia, because neither Frankfurt or a, Leip uh, or a Hamburg at the time uh, possessed a major university. And the university, what we would call now, is the University of Leipzig, which already by Bach's time was one of the, um, the incredible sort of ancient institutions of higher learning in, in Europe, um, had already established a, a pretty profound and incredible reputation. Uh, Martin Luther himself very famously uh, participated in a, a well-publicized debate on the campus. Um, Goethe was a student there. Most recently, Angela Merkel was a student, but that uh, didn't affect Bach much. Um, <laughs> in any case, um, so the, the town leaders in Leipzig really see this as an opportunity when Johann Kuhnau, Bach's predecessor, um, decides to move on. Uh, they see this as an opportunity to bring in a big name, um, to bring in someone who can add a little sparkle, a little celebrity, and help to set Leipzig apart um, as a city uh, that, that really would have sort of some gravitas, some draw for students coming to the university, all of this sort of stuff. Um, as though that weren't enough, um, we haven't even mentioned yet, yet uh, what we now consider uh, Bach's greatest output, which was his composition. Um, in addition to teaching, in addition to managing music at four churches, in addition to elevating uh, the sort of cultural standing of this great city, um, he's also charged with composing regularly. Uh, the churches, particularly the two main churches, St. Nicholas and St. Thomas, um, are requiring uh, that on any given Sunday of the church year, an entire cantata is sung. Um, so for the first couple of years that Bach is in Leipzig, he's also writing, writing, writing um, a new cantata for every single year, or every single Sunday of the church year, plus special events, special occasions, and all of that. Um, so the guy has a lot going on at this time um, that, he, that he composes this motet, Sing it dem Herren. We don't know exactly the occasion that this particular motet was written, um, but we can sort of imagine the context for which it was written. I try to keep all of this in mind if I ever uh, have a busy week and <laughs> start to complain a little bit about, um, about life here. <clears throat> so what we're looking at here is uh, a document that Bach scribbled into the front page of one of his cantatas, uh, Nun kommt der Heiden Highland, uh, and he lays out in, the, in this front cover, he's basically just scribbling out uh, the order of service for the day. Uh, his handwriting can be a little difficult to decipher, so I've printed it here on the left. But we can get an idea of what a typical uh, German Lutheran service might have looked like at this time, um, starting with a prelude. That looks uh, all fine and good to start, followed by the motet. Now, this is sort of interesting because up to this point uh, throughout the Renaissance, the, the motet, what we call a motet, sort of reigns supreme. Um, it, was, it was sort of the, 
the blockbuster musical feature of any worship service. But by the time we get into uh, Bach's Reformation, uh, Bach's Luther's Reformation, uh, as Bach is sort of living into it, uh, things are going to change pretty dramatically, and, and some priorities that we'll talk about in uh, a little bit will sort of shift. And so the motet is sort of relegated out of the center of the service and to this position right after the prelude, almost functioning as what we might consider an introit. Now, it says motet, and we're singing a motet today, but it's important to note that uh, the motets that they would have sung in Leipzig were not motets that Bach wrote. Um, the preference was for an older style, motets from the, the 16th century. Um, so we'll hear something like that this morning uh, in, in lieu of the psalm um, that we would normally sing to Anglican chant. Um, we're going to sing a setting of the Jubilate Deu, which is actually the psalm prescribed for today, uh, which works out pretty well, um, uh, by Hans Leo Hostler. So an earlier setting, something more akin to uh, what they would have used uh, at St. Thomas, St. Nicholas. Following the motet comes uh, preluding on, which just means uh, sort of improvising an introduction to the Kyrie, uh, intoning before the altar, reading of the epistle, singing of the litany, uh, improvising on an introduction to the chorale, the gospel, and then comes the principal music, or the cantata. So oftentimes the cantata, um, which was a multi-movement work made up of uh, each movement of sort of a different genre, might have even included a motet as part of the cantata, um, is, is either sung all before the sermon, or depending on how long it is, it might be sort of whacked in half and separated before and after. Following that, we get the singing of the creed, the sermon itself. Following the sermon, we get several verses of a hymn. Then we have the words of institution of communion, and then the second half of the cantata or some other mu uh, music, followed by singing a bunch of endless hymns until communion is over. <clears throat> what we're looking at here is Bach's manuscript for the very first page of this motet. Uh, if you're not a musician, you might find this a little hard to decipher. If you are a musician, you might find this a little hard to decipher. <laughs> it's, um, it's a little hard to see what's going on. So here's a modern score. Um, basically laying out the exact same thing. You can see uh, how this is divided. As I've said, it's a motet for what we call double choir, which simply means two SATB choirs each assigned their own distinctive roles, sometimes singing in conversation with one another, sometimes in fact singing together. Um, and at the end of this particular cantata, they will come together and just sing in four parts. But you can see it sort of laid out in the score with the brackets, choir one, and right underneath it, choir two. All right, so I've talked a little bit about how we don't exactly know why this was composed. Uh, there are a lot of theories. Um, as I said, Bach wasn't writing motets for church services, regular Sunday morning services at this time, uh, because the preference was for the older style. Um, so the motets he did write were usually for one-off occasions, uh, a visitor of a special guest to town, uh, a funeral, something of this nature. Um, and so there are a few theories. Uh, the first of the theory, and frankly, none of these theories are very good, and so that's why we say we really still don't know why this is written. Uh, but the first theory was that this work was written uh, for a memorial service for the Queen Consort of Poland, uh, who had died uh, during uh, around this time um, after having been exiled uh, from her royal court in Poland for 30 years for refusing to convert to Catholicism. She maintained her staunch uh, 
Lutheran heritage, uh, and as such was sort of considered a bit of a Lutheran martyr. So this is one theory. Another theory is that it was actually written not for her, but for her husband, uh, August II, who was the Elector of Saxony and King of Poland. Uh, he had visited Leipzig around this time after having recovered from a pretty bad illness. Um, if neither of those uh, suit you, Christoph Wolf suggests that neither of those were in fact the reason, but in fact there was no particular event that inspired this work, but that Bach perhaps just wrote it as a teaching piece for his students. Uh, this work, as you'll hear at 11 o'clock and a bit in just a minute, um, sort of runs the gamut of different styles. It expects a lot of uh, a lot of the singers, and so this might have been a great exercise, combined with the obvious fact that the text itself, Sing to the Lord a New Song, would have been a perfect theology as you're sort of training young singers uh, about the, the purpose and meaning and art of church music itself. All right, so let's get into it. <clears throat> the first movement of the piece sets uh, the text of Psalm 149. Uh, in fact, uh, the outer two movements are going to set two psalms, 149 in the first movement and a portion of Psalm 150 in the third movement. Um, so this is Psalm 149, and in this psalm, the psalmist calls us to praise God in music and in dance. They shall praise his name in the dance, with timbrel and harp, they shall play for him. Anyone know what a timbrel is? Some, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, so it's a little like percussion instrument, something like, we might consider something like a tambourine or something that sort of clanks and gives some rhythm. Uh, so we're painting pictures of lots of different things. Of course, if we were to move forward into Psalm 150, uh, we would get sort of a... Bumping into that. If we would move forward into Psalm 150, we'd get uh, an even more sort of elaborate, similar vision of this. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet, with the harp and lyre, with timbrel and dance, with strings and pipe, with clash of cymbals. Uh, let all that has breath praise the Lord. Um, for me, these two psalms together sort of evoke, um, if you're trying to put a picture to them, you might imagine something like this. Uh, this is a... a painting held in the Library of Congress, depicting the scene that's laid out in, in Second Chronicles of the dedication of the first temple in Jerusalem. This, of course, being King David's, the, the temple that was envisioned by King David when the Israelites landed in, great, this, uh, landed in Jerusalem, arrived in the Holy Land, uh, and built this great temple. Um, conceived of by David, of course, executed by his son Solomon. And in the book of Second Chronicles, we get this great text sort of describing this event as they dedicated the temple, just rife with musicians and singers and dancers. This is the text from Second Chronicles. It says, all of the Levites who were musicians stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, he is good, his love endures forever. Now, as we start to look at the first movement of this work, um, we can start to uh, see some of this scene unfolding. I mean, Bach is pretty ingenious, pretty dramatic in the way uh, that he uses sort of musical elements to express other ideas that aren't even necessarily apparent in the text. Um, so I'm going to ask uh, my singer friends here just to get ready for that first excerpt. Um, I'm going to pull apart, so we've got two choirs, of course, singing in combination with one another. Um, what I'd like uh, for you to listen for is in choir one, which we'll hear 
in isolation in just a second, um, I might suggest that we're actually hearing the sounds of strings um, being played. So the figurations that Bach writes is actually incredibly instrumental writing. If it didn't have any text under it at all, I would very much assume it was written for violins. Dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun. Very much violinistic or string writing. Um, by contrast, the second choir is going to be the sound of the percussionists, right? So at least at the beginning, of course, they'll trade roles as things go on. So if I could, Maestro Justin, uh, choir one, if you'd stand. <clears throat> All right, here we are. How do I do this? <laughs> here we are. One, two, three. <laughs> That's great, thank you. <laughs> well done, bravo. Um, as I'm listening to that, actually, this just occurred to me, it reminds me so much, actually, of the great sort of symphonic opening of Bach's uh, St. Matthew Passion, if you've listened to it, this great sort of setting the scene of that drama that's about to unfold, but all done by the strings. All right, choir two, our percussionists. And one, two, three. Sing it, sing it, sing And then they're going to start to pick up some of the other material. Uh, choir one, if you'd come up again. So we have these two contrasting things. We have strings going on, of course. So if we're looking at the texts, it's talking about praising God with string and harps and percussionists and timbrel and, and also with singing. So, so far we have maybe some string sounds in. Maybe we also have some percussionists in. Uh, we're saying over and over the word sing, right? <laughs> Zing it to dim hair and happens. 50 times over the course of this one movement. So over and over and over, we're extolling people to sing, and of course, we're singing ourselves. And then I would suggest that as we start to hear it together, uh, if you were to close your eyes, you can almost envision the dancers sort of whirling around as this all happens as well. So it's a pretty dramatic picture that's happening really just in the first eight bars of this piece. Ready? Can we get a new pitch? You've got it. One, two, three. Very much. And at that moment where we just stop, the choirs trade roles uh, and the violinists become percussionists and the percussionists become violinists. Thanks very much. Have a seat. <clears throat> All right, so this is the first movement. I wish we had uh, time to sort of dig into every bar because this is what we love to do with Bach is just obsess with the details. And of course, the more you uncover, the more questions you have and the more exciting it all becomes. Um, but because we're a little bit up against the clock, we're just gonna get small snippets. So you'll hear that in the first movement. I'd like to shift our focus if we could uh, to the second movement. Um, now, the second movement, in contrast to the outer two movements, is based on a German Lutheran chorale, which in turn is based on an earlier folk song. Um, and we'll, we'll look at both of those things in just a minute. But um, I think we should just acknowledge, um, for anyone who listens to or pays attention to music of the Reformation or really anything that came out of the Baroque, we do tend to see um, lots of things based on chorale tunes or what we might just 
call hymns. Um, the, the chorales are hymns that were the most common of the day. Of course, this plays right into Luther's uh, theology that the liturgy, uh, that scripture, uh, that the church should be accessible to people. Uh, it should be in the vernacular language. It should be familiar. It should be participatory. Um, this, of course, is a big contrast with what which uh, with pre-Reformation Catholicism, wherein everything was in Latin, was mostly spoken uh, by the priests or the clergy on behalf of the congregation, and the congregation sat rather uh, passively uh, as you know, backseat participants of the liturgy that was unfolding before them. So um, by weaving these chorale tunes, these things that would have been really, really well known in Bach's Germany to his congregation um, in throughout these works, even if they're just being sung by the choir, it allowed the congregation to sort of sit up and go, ah, I know that one. You know, we all like that feeling when something all of a sudden uh, sounds familiar and allows us to sort of latch on, to hold on. Um, we might think of it as akin to something like, um, What's your favorite hymn, Clark? Put him on the spot. Um, let's think. Uh, praise ye the Lord. Okay. Oh, praise, oh, praise ye the Lord. Yeah, excellent hymn. Um, I also think of along those same lines, similar time period, um, Praise God from whom all blessings flow, uh, which we'll actually sing uh, this afternoon. We all know the tune. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, the old hundredth psalm tune. Um, by the way, in today's uh, service, we're going to get not only this great motet, not only the Hostler motet, uh, but also uh, some really great Lutheran Reformation hymns, <laughs> A Mighty Fortress, and so on. Uh, it's worth noting that this is October after all. If we were Lutheran, we would be very much celebrating Reformation around this time. Um, so the idea that Bach is using these chorales, sort of borrowing ideas uh, from, from popular hymn tunes that would have been well known. Now this, I have to say, this tune that is incorporated into this particular motet is not one that sort of lasted the test of our time, at least. Maybe it'll come back, as they sometimes do. Um, but it, it does actually strike as quite similar to Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow. Um, now what I'd like, uh, as I said, this is actually, I need to find a translation here. Um, I guess to dig a little deeper, these chorales oftentimes, who's heard, there's a very famous saying Martin Luther supposedly said, and who knows if it's true, something to the effect of, why should the devil have all the good tunes? And this was a justification for incorporating uh, popular tunes or secular tunes into church music, sort of stealing a tune that you might have heard at the pub the night before and changing the words to say, oh, you know, now it's about, now it's about Jesus, right? Um, <laughs> which, you know, I actually... Um, I was trying to find a good example of what that might be, and I Googled like top 10 like pop songs today, and I didn't know one of them, so <laughs> I wasn't gonna be a very good example of this. Um, in any case, I'm gonna ask Matt. So this, um, the folk tune that this originates from is, um, it's trans it translates to something of, I know of a little blue flower. It's a love song, a sort of a sad love song, Talk each successive verse talking about a different season and talking about some of the, the flowers, the vegetation that exist in that season, just like our love, uh, it always passes away. <laughs> uh, so it's this sort of like uh, mournful, uh, sad love song. And I'm going to ask Matt to sing just a little bit of it. Um, Justin, one second. Just one second. Um, <laughs> So the text of this, if we're translating what Matt's about to sing, and pardon the very unpoetic translation here, something like, I know of a little blue flower that shines like the heavens. It stands in a green meadow. It's called Forget-Me-Not. Uh, I couldn't find it anywhere. It had disappeared as the frost and the cold winds turned me pale. 
Beautiful. Thank you, Matt. All right, if I could have choir two stand, yeah. So the way we'll do this is we're just gonna keep jumping to the next successive section and we'll place like a three beat for mod at the end of each, okay? Uh, so this is the chorale, you'll hear, it should sound very similar. Now we're attaching this sacred text to it. Uh, I'll put it up on the screen. Um, so this is the text we're singing. Just as a father has compassion for his young little children, so does the Lord treat us the poor. Ready? And, sorry, sorry. Ready? And. on like that. So it sounds pretty similar to the folk song, yes. Um, now, of course, that's never enough for Bach. Uh, so he doesn't just use that text, but he's going to sort of interweave a secondary text into this. So now he's going to take two texts. Both of these texts are written by the, the Lutheran theologian Johann Grauman, um, I think around the 1540s. Um, and uh, so two entirely distinctive texts by the same theologian, and Bach's gonna sort of place them, uh, inter interweave them, so they almost seem to be in conversation with one another. So the first choir will sing what we just heard, the first phrase of the chorale, just as a father has compassion, and then the second choir, um, let me go back for just a second, so we see the chorale start first, and then the second choir comes in with an aria. And so at this, throughout this whole thing, choir two is charged with singing the, the simple chorale tune, while choir one comments on it with this text, this much more sort of ornate writing in the aria. Um, so if we could have both choirs up. Um, and what I'd like you to, to look at is just sort of, you know, try to think about how these texts uh, talk, speak with one another. Just as a father has compassion, God accepts us furthermore, as though it's just sort of a, an affirmation of what's being said. For his long, young little children, so does the Lord treat us, the poor. God accepts us furthermore, and it keeps coming back, and so on. Here we are. And. We dropped apart. Okay, thank you, thank you very much. Um, so, um, I wanna make sure we save a little bit of time for questions. Um, I would love to dig into the third movement, but the truth is a lot of the material that we talked about uh, in the first movement is going to be somewhat common to the third movement. Again, both based on these two Psalms, the last two in the book of Psalms, 149 and 150. So there's gonna be a lot of commonality there. Um, so I think we'll save our time, but I'd like to close uh, with this quote. John Elliott Gardner, um, for anyone who has 
read his writings, uh, particularly on the works of Bach or listened to any of his recordings. Uh, he's a, an academic, he's a scholar, uh, he's a musician himself, uh, and he, he just writes beautifully. He has sort of an especially close relationship throughout his career with this music. And he writes this about the motets as a whole. Bach's motets constitute the most perfect and in some ways the most hypnotic set among his works. They grew out of a genre of which the Bach family had cultivated for generations, and they formed the core repertory of the uh, Bach expected all of his pupils to sing and master. Through their extraordinary complexity and density, they make colossal demands of everyone who performs them, requiring stamina, exceptional virtuosity, and sensitivity to the abrupt changes of mood and texture, as well as to the exact meaning of each word. With their skillful use of canon, fugue, and counterpoint, the brilliant exploitation of double choir sonorities and the tautness of their structural organization, each of them is challenging in its own way and endlessly fascinating. And this is the important part. Above all, they can touch the listener as well as the performer, revealing Bach's essential, essentially compassionate nature, his dance-like joy in the praise of God, and his total certitude in the contemplation of death. Thank you. I will stay for a few uh, for some questions, um, except I'd like to allow the singers to go have a chance to get vested for the service. So thank you all. Any questions? I just comment say, could you please do this every week? <laughs> I would love to. You know, there there are some churches doing this. Um, there's uh, one in particular in Boston, Emanuel Church in Boston, started a cantata series years ago. And even though they're actually an Episcopal church, they've staked their reputation on doing like a Bach cantata most Sundays of the church year. It's a very peculiar but amazing little culture. Yeah, I wish we could, yeah. It's really not a question. You talked about the complexity of the, of the musical score. And it's so interesting to realize that this, this was sung by children so that the, the education, musically, yeah. it is just astounding to me. Little uh, boys. The choir and I were speculating on that yesterday as we were rehearsing a bit, um, just wondering. So Martha's right. I mean, this music was almost exclusively sung by the kids, um, particularly the treble parts, the kids in the, uh, in the choir at the Thomas Schula. Um, and there's a lot of uh, argument uh, in Bach scholarship about exactly what the performing forces would have looked like. Um, a guy who I studied a bit with proposed a theory uh, up in Boston um, of quite a famous theory that sort of shook the Bach scholarship world, suggesting that actually Bach probably would have performed these, uh, much of it with one on a part. So one child singing a part, because we see in the records um, of the St. Thomas School, we know that not all the boys sang, and we see evidence of Bach saying, I need at least eight boys so I can send you know, a whole choir to St. Nicholas and a whole choir to St. Thomas. Uh, we also know this from um, the numbers of scores we have. Of course, these things can be lost easily, but of many of the um, complete sets of scores that we have, uh, th we think this is evidence that, like, okay, we have every part for this. Why would we be missing, you know, the second boy's part or something? And so there's a lot of evidence to suggest, uh, at least oftentimes, it could have been sung by little children, school-age children, with one on a part. Um, there's also speculation as to how much of it was doubled by stringed instruments. Um, 
a lot of box stuff was. There was a tradition in the choral writing of just adding some strings to, to double and support the choral parts. Um, but again, in this instance, we see that um, we have records of all of the payments that were being made. The boys in the school were actually paid a small stipend to sing in the churches. So we see records of the stipends paid to the choristers. We see records of the stipends paid to the cantor. Um, but we have no records of payments made to string players for some of this. So we speculate it was sung by children, yeah, which is remarkable, week in and week out. So, Brett, in terms of its complexity and intricacy in harmonic density, isn't it fair to say that Bach was really radical for his time? First part of the question. And then second, could you comment on his influence down through the ages and whether you think he's the most influential of our great composers? Yeah, it's both great questions. Um, so in terms of complexity and being radical, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if radical, he was very much writing in line with what he had learned. Bach was certainly a scholar of other composers. He never left Germany throughout his life, never traveled outside the borders. Um, but as other musicians from other country traveled, other countries traveled through, particularly from Italy and France. Um, he was somewhat obsessed with imitating and copying the styles of other composers. Uh, so we see, I mean, for example, he wrote an Italian concerto and he wrote some French suites and this sort of stuff. Um, so he was definitely drawing um, a lot of what he did from, uh, from influence of other composers. Um, of course, he oftentimes would take, like he did in the case of the, uh, the organ concertos, he took some string concertos of Vivaldi and wrote them for the organ. And we can see the places that he thought he could improve upon Vivaldi because he changed notes and said, oh, I can do a little better. And of course he, well, did, that's my opinion. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know about radical, but certainly he was doing it, um, was well, even, at, even in his own time, was well understood to be doing it better than anyone else and to be pushing the, pushing the boundaries. And he did it, in fact, so well that this is a time when, you know, where we've just seen sort of in the century and a half or so prior to this, a massive shift in our understanding of, of music theory, um, the way that music is meant to be written. We've moved out of the Renaissance. We've totally moved into a different type of notation uh, from the mensural notation that was used in the Renaissance and earlier um, to a different understanding of meter and all of this stuff. And so he is working in a world where things are sort of shifting and evolving and hadn't really landed. And by the time he comes along, he's just so dang good at it, people just embrace that. Yeah, this is the way it should be done. And so for all of us, we often uh, call Bach sort of the father of Western music or something similar to this. And it's for that very reason, that he just did it so well that uh, most any music student who you know studies harmony, studies music theory, um, are learning essentially the rules that Bach laid out just by nature of the way he composed. So do you think he was the first jazz musician because of his interventions? Um, I've heard that. For, because of the way he improvised? Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wouldn't call him a jazz musician, but there is... Um, yeah, it's interesting. We think of when we think of we don't think of classical music musicians at least today as being big improvisers. It's something that we think about. We associate with jazz. Um, of course, at the time, it was very different. I mean. Um, we tend to specialize more today. I think some of this has to do with just our education systems and the fact that in order to sort of have a career, we all, as we move throughout our education, we focus and we focus and we focus more specifically on one thing. We become an expert in the thing we're studying. Uh, so as a musician, many of us you know, become a conductor or become a performer or become a composer. That's what our major is. Um, of course, at the time, education was different and they were expected to wear all of the hats. I mean, Bach was all of those things. Um, and he was also a tremendously good improviser. And much of the work we have um, 
though it's you know through composed and he had actually written it out was based on you know what he would have improvised in service and things like this. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of parallel between. I saw a program once with Victor Jackson, a baseballer, telling kind of that story that he felt to tavern in actually they do a series and that he felt that that was like the first original jazz. Yeah, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are jazz musicians that draw a lot of inspiration. I know it doesn't sound right. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Great. Any other questions? Yes. So, so we have recorded the music, and we get familiar from that, but way back then, it was only live music that they had. So what were the venues? You said the church tried to embrace some of the songs that were familiar to people. Where did they go to get familiar with those two? Yeah, it's a really good question. So music. Uh, I don't know that I have the exact right answer, but certainly you're right. I mean, the, the, the idea, the notion that we understand it as like the concert hall with, you know, 2,000 people showing up to listen to a professional symphony is something that evolved quite later in the 19th century. Um, and so, yeah, music was happening in smaller places. It was happening certainly in homes. It was happening in civic, uh, you know, town fairs, town festivals, this sort of thing. Uh, a lot of these songs, as I said, you know, the folk songs and things like this were passed through families. They were sung in the pub, all of this. Um, so yeah, they're coming in smaller areas, but it's also worth acknowledging that in many ways, maybe speaking similarly to the way we sort of compartmentalize and, and uh, focus on professionalizing certain things in our modern world, music was much more a part of everyone's lives, right? They weren't listening or they weren't watching TV and they weren't uh, on the internet and they weren't doing all of those things. And so uh, the form of entertainment in the home was largely around the passage of songs and these things. So they're being, they're being shared through generations in families, in congregations, in town meetings, all of this stuff. <clears throat> Okay, with that, I think we will get ready for some Bach. Thank you very much. Thank you.